Well, it's good to see you here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand and they will get you one. Hold your hands up and, and they'll get there eventually. This really ends the first section of this epistle. And you can break it up in, in smaller ways, but basically Paul is kind of concluding the beginning of this part to the church that is in Corinth, trying to deal with unity, trying to deal with how they have been divided with each other and trying to present his case of why he has the right to speak into their lives. Now that's a, a difficult thing to do, to tell someone why you have the right to speak in their lives. It doesn't usually go well when you force yourself onto to someone's life, but when you have a right to, what do you do? How do you deal with that? And Paul is in that place right now where he is dealing with the Corinthians and he's wanting them to understand who he is to them. He's been dealing with the church that's been fractured and torn. It's something that he sees as important. It's something that Jesus saw was important. Remember Jesus in John 17, before the crucifixion, when he was praying, he said that the whole world would know that we are his followers by the way we love one another, by the way we really care about each other was going to be an evidence of who he was, that that was the sign that would prove that we are actually his followers. And then he also said, Father, I pray that they would be one even as we are one. And so this is of great importance, not only to Paul, but it was to Jesus. It was something that mattered. But we live in a society where unity is not embraced. In fact, individuality is embraced. Those who are unique, those who are different. And so we have the various types of music, clothing, and all those things are great. But we all try and make that point that I'm my own person. I'm unique. I have my own way of doing things. And that's one thing to have your own creativity, but it's another thing to exclude yourself from the work of God in his community or his body. And so Paul is trying to establish this unity with the church that is there in Corinth, that they would indeed be one, that they would value this unity that they would see that it's not a matter of their self-sufficiency, which they exalted themselves. We are our own people. We don't have any hierarchy over us. We're self-made. And they exalted themselves in their knowledge and their wisdom and their gifts, even though there was so much lacking in their lives. And now Paul is going to talk to them about the role of a leader, and those who are in positions of leadership to them. And this is kind of an interesting thing. You know, when someone who's in a leadership role like myself starts to talk about leaders and leadership roles, it's always a little awkward, you know. It's like, listen to me. It says so. You know, you, 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 you have to be careful how, how you view this, especially because there has been, throughout the history of the church, such abuse 
of the power of leaders. Used to control, manipulate people for money, for their own gain. And people see this and are weary and leery. And rightfully so. And so as we explore this area of leadership, we are going to look at it kind of from this dysfunctional church and Paul trying to to bring this right function in it. And I think it's very applicable to a lot of the things that we can gain from this. And so let's, let's look at how Paul starts to talk to those Corinthians about this area of leadership. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And so he starts off and he tells them that they need to regard us as servants. And he's talking about those who are in areas of leadership role. Now, when I think, oh, we have to regard us as a servant, I think of, okay, well, you're, you're a servant, so you're there for, for me. You know, you're, you're there to take care of my shoes or take my coat. You know, that's my idea of a servant. But what he's trying to do is say that what we are here is as servants of Christ. And so it's not, I'm here just to serve you. I'm here to serve Jesus. And that should play a different role in how we view the servant because who they are a servant of. And an example that I thought of is, you know, on a lot of our police cars, it might say to protect and to serve. And so they are there, the police, to, to serve us. But they have guns. Okay? So they're in a position to serve, but they also have a position of authority. And so if a cop pulls you over... You don't say, hey, can you check the gas? Can you do the windows for me? I mean, you're here to serve, right? Well, you can try it if you want. Let me know how it goes. But what the purpose is, they're there to serve you, but they're there to serve you with a certain capacity. They have a certain role in that service. And it's the same thing where Paul is saying, we are servants of Christ. In other words, we are here to represent Jesus to you. And so when you think of us in this leadership role, recognize who it is that we are serving. It's Jesus. And that should give you an idea of where we fit into your life as leaders. We fit in a role of serving him, but still having a position over you. And then he goes on, he says, and those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, that's an interesting, the secret things of God. And it's not like, yes, I heard God's whisper into my ear, and so now I'm going to tell you what it is. What he's talking about, the secret things of God, is what he talked about in Romans 16.25. Now, to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. He's talking about Jesus Christ and his role. That is the mystery, the hidden things of God. The secret of God was Jesus, the Messiah, come to be a servant, die for our sins. That's what he's talking about. So it's not like, I've got special revelations because I'm a leader. And I can tell you things that you don't know because I hear from God. It's not that kind of mystery thing. And those are things that have been used in the past to try and place an authority over people that isn't given there by God. 
The mystery that he's talking about, the secret things of God, are the things that pertain to Jesus, who Jesus was, what Jesus did. That's what he's talking about. And so what he's saying is our role in this leadership position is to serve Jesus Christ and to declare the truth of who he is to you. That is what we are supposed to do. That is our position. And this idea of leadership is more than just pastors. There are a lot of people who take a leadership role here at Genesis. It's not just me. And it's talking about all those who are being put in a position to represent and serve Jesus Christ and to make clear the things of who Jesus is to us. And he goes on and he says that they must be found faithful. It is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. In other words, they have to be faithful to God and to this message of Jesus that has been given to them. That they have to represent it accurately. And and this is where history has shown us so many have abused this role. That they're not faithful to Jesus or to the message of who he is, but they used a position of leadership for their own gain. And Paul talks about them also as just being wolves. And we understand this because we've seen it. Many of us have been subject to people who have maybe abused that role of leadership in our lives or know someone who has. And so there is this hesitancy towards anyone who's in a position of leadership because of what we've seen that we didn't like or was abused. And so Paul is giving some ground rules here, saying if a person takes this role as a servant of Christ to present the mysteries of who Jesus is to us, they need to be faithful to that call. They need to be faithful to that message. That's a given. And then he goes on and he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each receives his praise from God. Now, I've got to tell you, these passages just shook my world this week. God really used these things to... to, do some evaluation within me. Because he talks about three different judgments here. He talks about judgment from men, he talks about self-judgment, and he talks about the judgment from God. And when he talks about the judgment from people, what he's doing is he's saying, if I live the right way, if I do what is right, I don't have to worry about what you say. I'm doing what I'm supposed to, and what you say is not going to influence me. And, And that's a difficult thing especially for people who are in leadership positions, because you put yourself out there for people. You're in front of them, and you start talking to them, and you basically are now the object for criticism. They can say all kinds of things about you. You know, well, he wasn't that funny this morning. Well, you know, he wasn't very deep this morning. You know, his shoes are funny. Whatever it is, I mean... (laughs) 
whatever it is, you kind of put yourself in a place where you can be criticized. And it's something that happens to everyone who's in a position of leadership. Everyone wonders, what do you think? You know, I go home Sundays after I, I speak, and I might turn on a football game, but my mind isn't in the game. I'm thinking, I wonder if that made sense, you know, and I wonder if this is true. And I, I'll ask my wife, what do you think? But it's my wife, you know. She, she has to live with me, and so I know she's not going to be too harsh on me. She's, she's, you know, and I always get, my mom comes here, and my mom always says, I did great, but it's my mom, you know. It's like... And so I wonder, where do I fit? How did I do? And it's something that happens to us. And Paul says, I'm not worried about what you think. And I felt challenged. Do do I worry? Am I so concerned about what people's impression is? Because I'm so concerned about what people think, it can affect what I say and what I do. And that's not how you lead. You don't ask people, where do you want to go? I'm going to lead you. It doesn't work that way. You have to be following Christ, his servant, so that you can lead people. And then the second one is really interesting when he says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. I was like, what the heck are you talking about? And what Paul is saying is, I'm doing everything that I know how to do, but I know that I'm not the one who judges. So just because my conscience is clear, it doesn't mean that I'm not skewed in my thinking or that I have the final word or say. He recognizes that there is a judgment that is over him. And this is so good to know. Because we do think of ourselves sometimes in the best light, don't we? You ever see a picture of yourself and think, am I really that heavy? I, I thought I was much younger than that. I, I thought I was much thinner. I, I kind of thought, you know, I resembled someone else. No, that's really you. Is my hair really that gray? Okay, enough about my confessions, all right? We see ourselves sometimes skewed. And even though we think we're doing everything that we should do and all that we know is right, we're not the ones who we have to answer to. We don't answer to ourselves. And so he says, even though my conscience is clear, it doesn't mean that I'm innocent. And so he recognizes that he doesn't answer to himself. And he goes on and he says, it is the Lord who judges me. And he goes on, he says, Therefore judge nothing before his appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. And he's saying, you don't really know what's going on in these leaders. God does. These people who you're placing on a pedestal, who you're trusting in, God really knows what's going on with them. You don't really know. But what's really profound about this is that Paul recognizes that there is an authority that he has to submit to. And there is a praise he wants to get from God, not from men and not from himself. And what struck me about this verse is how we think about God's role in our lives. 
It reminds me of when I would come home and my kids were home by themselves for a period of time and you find a hole in the wall and you wonder what or who made this hole in the wall. There it is. And so you talk to your children and you say, did you make the hole in the wall or do you know how the hole got there? And none of them know how the hole got there. And so you're now left with this understanding, perhaps there is someone else living in our house secretly that we don't know. Or, or there is some poltergeist kind of thing that's taking place. Or else my children are lying and you actually hope it's the latter of those three. But you finally go through all your interrogation. You, you search all that you can to find out how this hole got there. And you finally come to the conclusion that someone is lying or all of them are lying. And you tell them, you know what? God knows what happened. And you can feel the smile and relief come over them as they know, good, as long as you don't know, I don't care. <laughs> And so this idea of, well, God knows, has no weight on their conscience at all. And you know what? We live our lives like that. We live our lives with this idea, well, yeah, God knows, but I really don't care if God knows. I care if you know. I care of how it affects me. And the weight of who God is has been devalued in our lives so much that he's almost non-existent except in this idea that we have. And so what really is happening is we're playing Christian. We're playing church. But God doesn't speak into our lives. And the thought of him having knowledge and judgment over our lives doesn't weigh on us. Who cares? And I wonder about myself and these things. If I'm concerned and recognizing God's place in my life and in the lives of the people I know. It's been an interesting week. I've had some circumstances where I've been talking with people and involved in, in different areas in their lives that are, are difficult and traumatic. And I get to this place where I want to fix it. And so I hear the problem and I diagnose the situation and I go to the scriptures and I'm going to find the scripture and I'm going to expound these things and I'm going to help them get past this area of their lives. And I start studying some areas and I started figuring out some things that take place as far as bad habits and how do you break bad habits and how do bad habits form in our lives and how do we get past them. You know, and I, I understand the, how the mind begins to work and affect our physical being. That if you have an addiction with uh, alcohol, with some kind of drugs, with pornography, you name it, there's some kind of addiction. What happens is it's not just something you think your mind thinks about. It's something your mind thinks about and then associates with something else. 
So if you drink, I, I drink, I know I'm drinking, but I like the way I feel after I drink, and I, I like the, the rush I get, or if it's using drugs, or whatever it is. It could be a relationship that's not healthy, something that just gets you excited, gets you involved in it, and pretty soon you think about it, and it affects you physically. It's like you build this room in your mind, and when you get down and you get bummed out, your mind says, I know a room you can go to. This room will help get you out of that pit. And you start decorating this room with different things, and you go there to get a release from your depression or whatever it is, and you start going there. And recognizing that and, and building other rooms so that you don't go there. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, this is amazing. And as I start to go in and disclose the amazing things that I found that are going to help deliver this situation in these people's lives, and it just gets put aside. And you feel like, wait a second, I'm, I'm here to fix this. And you find out that all your knowledge and all your help and all your studying and all that you do isn't enough. And you can't help the situation. And then God impresses on me, and he basically tells me, will you give up what is necessary for your life to trust me for what is necessary for theirs? And I know that sounds really serious, and you're all wondering, what the heck does that mean? And God says, will you fast and pray and trust me to change their hearts? How can me giving up food and praying, God, change the circumstance? Here's what's going on, God. I know. I've read about it. I saw it on, online. I know what needs to happen, God. And God says, will you trust me to do the change? Do you believe in me? Do you really have to step in and fix it? Or do you think I can do it without your help? And it challenged me made me feel bad because the reality is I don't trust you, God, like I really need to. I don't believe in you, God, like I really want to. God, I'm not giving you the power in my life that you need to have. And you see, ultimately, that judgment falls in God's hands. Ultimately, what Paul is telling them is, you know what? God is the one who is going to judge all these leaders, and as well as you, as well as myself. He is the one who is real that you need to answer to. He's the one who will give you praise or not, because it doesn't matter if he doesn't give it to you. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Is that a reality in our lives, in this Christian experience? Because otherwise, we're playing games. There's a scripture in Luke 12, verses 1 and 3, Jesus spoke about. Luke 12, starting at verse 1, says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, this is talking to those who are close to him. This is talking to those who are his followers. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. 
There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Oh my goodness. That's a terrifying thought. And he's not saying it to make us think, oh no, God's going to get me. He's saying it to help us recognize the truth that God doesn't want us to live a life that's just concerned about others. He wants us to live a life where we're concerned about him. Otherwise, what the heck are we doing? What is this about? if it's not allowing the voice of God to affect our lives and to speak into our lives. And it's really about being real. With all the junk, with all the dirt that's in each of us. Recognizing God knows it. I'm not going to play games. I'm not going to act spiritual. I am who I am. God is going to judge me. I am going to live under that awareness You know, the frightening thing is that if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't want to be my friend. But the liberating thing is Jesus does know and he still wants to be my friend. You see, that's the God who's drawing us out of this game playing, out of this hypocrisy into a genuine relationship. It says, I know. You don't have to cover up anything. I know. But do you care that I know? Do you care that I'm a part of this in your life? Do you want me to be a part of this? And so this understanding of of who God is and the reality of what he is should motivate us to understand his role within our lives. And we want that role to be in our lives. He goes on, Paul, back in 1 Corinthians Verse 6 says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And so he's basically challenging them. And and again, now Paul is taking off the gloves and he's saying, you know, you place such value in these people. And the idea of you shouldn't go beyond what is written, that's really not clear what that means. Most likely it has to do with not having any idolic kind of worship of people, that you only worship God and place him in that high standard. But then he goes on and he says, you know, what you've been given... Someone gave it to you. You act as if you had this place, that you are better than these other people, even though what you have has been given to you. How can you do that? And he's really challenging their pride here, their false perspective of themselves and their position, that they shouldn't exalt men, that that belongs to God alone, that they shouldn't take credit for something that was given to them. He goes on in verse 9 and he says, For it seems to me... That God has put us apostles on display. Excuse me, verse 8. 
Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. Now he's just kind of being insulting. He goes, you think you're kings. I wish you were. If you were kings, we would be reigning with you because we are together in the body of Christ. He's kind of giving him a jab there. Verse 9, he says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles, remember, us apostles, those who are in leadership position, on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. And this is an image of the Romans when they would conquer a city, they would bring the king or whoever was in charge of that nation into the procession and they would be chained and bound and they'd be walking behind the conqueror showing that they were defeated. And he's saying, you know, us apostles, we're taking that place. We're taking that role. In verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. In the Greek, that word refuse is a lot stronger than it is here. If I were to say what that word is, you would think I was cussing and be mad at me. But basically, it has to do with something you would step on in a dirty road where animals walk. You've become the refuse. We've become the refuse. Now, we read these things, and I think, oh my gosh. As a leader, I feel like a baby complaining about anything when I read what Paul has gone through. I mean, I haven't gone through any of this stuff. I haven't experienced this. And what what Paul is trying to, to bring about to them is the blessings that you have received. Someone has paid for them. The, the things that you have learned about Christ and who he is, someone has taken time, has studied, has given themselves to give those things to you. The inspiration that has helped you in this walk and in this journey with Jesus, someone has taken out of their time to give to you so that you could have that. It has cost someone something. Even the things that take place here. You know, this isn't just the leadership of myself as that pastor role. There are people who are here before me setting up the chairs. We don't just come here, unlock the door, and things are ready to go. The people who who help and care for your children, who plan the lessons so that your kids can learn, so that this can be an experience that is beneficial for them as well, someone gives of themselves. Someone gets up early. Someone takes time to, to practice the songs, to learn the songs, to set up the sound, to do all these things, to get the blessings that we enjoy. It costs someone something. But again, we take it for granted. We just assume that this is supposed to happen. And there's not a lot of thanks that is given to these things. We don't thank those who care for our kids. Well, maybe you do. I hope you do. 
You say, thank you so much for the time you took and taking this time. I know what it's like to sit in there with all these kids. God bless you. I appreciate what you're doing for me. For those who are giving of themselves. But you see, we, we, we live in a time where we assume that's supposed to happen. And we don't realize what it costs someone. And you see what Paul gave and how he was just basically bore in his own body the marks of what it meant to follow Jesus. And he did it for these people. And here are these people saying, oh, Paul, we don't care about you. Who are you to us? We can handle things ourselves. And he's saying, you guys, you don't realize. Oh, you're strong, but I was weak so that you could be strong. I was bruised. I was crushed. I endured these shameful things. I was made refuse so that you could have something. And you just take it for granted. And I know because of the abuse of leadership that there is this tendency to, well, you know, I know of bad leaders. I do too. But for every bad leader, there are a thousand good ones. For every leader who has abused their position, there are thousands who serve faithfully, who care about the people and play a similar, similar role that Paul played in being a servant and caring at the expense of themselves. And really what, what it is, is some of us don't even want to take, into, in, uh, take on the role of a leadership position, whether it's with kids or in any area, because of people. We don't want to have to put ourselves in this place with people, because we don't trust people. And believe me, for every leader who has been abusive of their power, there are 10,000 people who abuse leaders, who are not respectful. There's a lot more people who are judgmental than there are leaders who are bad. It's just statistics. I know, they have email. They have Facebook and they, they send me comments anonymously over our website saying I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing, saying that I've caused harm to the body of Christ, that I'm doing these things wrong. And I'm like, who are you? Leave me alone. And so stepping in this role is a difficult thing and it's hard to put yourself out there but recognize that people do. And those who really want to honor God do these things for our sake. You know, I've been serving in ministry for 30 years, 32. And, and in that time, I have been a part of traumatic things in people's lives. I was at the bedside of a family when their father, their husband, passed away. I was there breaking the news when someone found out that they had cancer. I was at the, the service and invited into the memorial service when a mom lost her baby and is crying over a casket that's only two feet 
sick. And I'm in these situations and, and they overwhelm me. I'm asked to, to go to the hospital when their 12-year-old girl is dying of cancer and to try and speak hope to her. I've been there when a wife has found out that her husband has been cheating on her and she just came to faith in Christ. And I've been a part of all these areas in people's lives. And as people share these things with me and they're asking for help and I'm, I'm there to try and give them Jesus and his hope. And these things weigh on me. I, I don't hear these things. I don't come home from one of these hospital visits and come home and say, hey, honey, what's for dinner? It weighs on me. I, I bear these things and they stay on my conscience and they stay on my heart and they stay on the mind. And I bring them home and it affects me. It affects anyone who's going to be in that position. How can it not? It's part of what you do when you take that role in people's lives. And understand that these things are there and you, you step into this role so that you can be helpful to connect to the invisible God and see the reality of who he is. And so as Paul is disclosing all these things, he's telling them the role that he has played in their lives. And he goes on and he shares his motives. After he comes down heavy in verse 14, he says, I am not writing this to shame you. And I'm not telling you this to make you feel bad for me. He says, but to warn you as my dear children. As my dear children. I remember when each of my kids were born. I remember the twins. It was amazing. I got to be in the operating room. And it was a cesarean section and they put that yellow gunk on her stomach and they put like this plastic thing and they cut her open and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like forensic files before it actually happened. You know, I'm just watching this and they had to tell me to get off the air tube because I was stepping on her air. I mean, it, it's all there. It, it's, it's stuck in my mind. I remember what was taking place. And, and as they opened up, I remember when they brought out my son Jordan, they they pull out this guy and he was premature. He still weighed four pounds, eight ounces. But I was amazed at how big he was. And I was thinking, there's another one in there? How can that be? The other one's going to be the size of a tennis ball. How can that be? And then they pulled out Samuel and he was the same size. And I remember them working on the babies over here on this table over here. And I remember they took out this thing and they put it on her stomach. And I'm like, what's that? And they go, well, that's her uterus. We've got to sew that back up. And I'm like, you're going to put that back in, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> and all this is taking place and it's just embedded in my mind. You know, in this sterile situation, in this hospital room, there was this majestic moment that was just profound. And for the rest of their lives, no matter what kind of grief they put me through, I cannot escape that memory of this was majestic, what took place. I was there. I saw that birth. And I saw the hand of God. My son Daniel, when he was born, the nurse who was there, it was her first actual being a part of that labor and it was her first time there and the doctor was pretty bossy and he was telling her what to do and she after Daniel was born she asked well what's his name I said his name's Daniel and she started crying 
She says, that's the name I want to name my boy if I ever have a boy. And the fact that he was born there, I remember just thinking that, yeah, he's special. He's anointed by God. And not to leave my daughter out, I got to include her because she's here this morning. <laughs> you know, everyone says it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl. We just want a healthy baby. I wanted a girl. I had three boys. I wanted a girl. I kept it low key. I kept it down low. You know, okay. Yeah, whatever, you know. But, oh, <laughs> come on, God. You know, I'm just like... And we didn't know, we, I don't know why we didn't want to know, or we couldn't know, or I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but finally, when she was born, the doctors take her out, and I'm like, it's a girl! And the doctors, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, we have to determine, I was like, hey, buddy, I know, okay, if it's a boy or a girl. This ain't no rocket science here, it's a girl. And I was the one screaming out to Corrine, it's a girl, it's a girl, I got my girl, yes! You know, I was so jazzed. But each time it was so special. It meant so much to me. And Paul is telling them, I'm not writing to shame you. I'm warning you as my dear children. And you guys, I can't tell you how many times I have talked to people who I care about deeply. And I've warned them about the things in their lives. There's a young man who I've been talking to who's just who's very involved with drugs and just kind of messing his life up. And I'm talking to him and I say, hey, buddy, you need to knock this off, man. You, you know you came out of this. Why do you want to go back into it? And he says, hey, man, just back off. Just leave me alone. And I'm like, man, you invited me into this conversation. You're the one who called me up crying, saying you needed help. You're the one who invited me into your life to help you with this situation. And now when I see it's going down the tubes and you tell me, back off, I'm sorry, I can't. I just can't let go. I can't stop caring. Just like I can't stop caring or loving my children. How do you expect me to just say, no biggie, go ahead, screw your life up, I don't care anymore. I can't do it. You change your phone number so I can't call you? Dude, I gave you the phone. Remember, so you could call me. But we don't want people involving themselves with our lives if it's something that we don't want to change. And so we put up the boundary and Paul says, I'm like a father to you. I'm telling you this and I'm warning you this because it's important to you. And he goes on and he says in verse 15, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. He's saying, I care about you. You, don't, you have a lot of people who have helped you out, in, but you only have one father. I'm the one who led you to faith. And I know that I haven't led all of you to faith. I've led some of you here. A lot of you have been led to faith, but we're in a position now where someone needs to play a role in your life that is able to help. And it doesn't have to be me. I'm not saying I'm the one, I volunteer. I, I, I don't. I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I, I do care about what happens. And as you invite me in your life, I want to be in that position. But we all need someone who we can go to when 
life is tearing us apart when we're making bad decisions or we don't want to make decisions. I have men in my life that I go to when I have issues. I go to Bill up north in Napa. I'm talking to Ralph down here in Chino. Men who I could say, dude, this is going on. What do you think? And I've gotten good counsel. I trust them. You need someone who you can trust, who you can go to, who's going to give you advice, someone who you can recognize as caring for you and be concerned for you so that when you are struggling, falling, they can at least guide you in the right way. I don't know everything. You might come to me and say, hey, I've got this problem, and I'm going to say, ah, it's beyond me. Maybe you should seek help over here. I'm not going to try and be something I'm not. But I will try and represent Jesus, and I, I will try and love you as a father cares for his children. And Paul said he's born a reputation for them. He, he goes on and he says, Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? Wow. Do I need to discipline you? Or can I come to you in a gentle spirit? Because it's not about talk. It's about power. It's about the reality of who God is. And God wanting us to be united, united together so that we can serve him effectively. And God places people in our lives to help us in that journey. And we are there for one another. We need people just like we need Christ. And we have to have this understanding, the reality of who Jesus is, and be answerable to him. You're not answerable to me. We each will be judged by God. And his judgment is true. And he's not there to condemn us, but like a father, he wants to lead us, he warns us, wants to help us, wants to move us forward. We need to recognize the reality, the substance of who he is. And this morning, to help us remember this, we're going to partake of communion together. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. What this is, is the reminder of, I did something for you so that you could be with me. And it's real. And just as I had that meal with my disciples all those years ago, I want to have that meal with you and recognize that I did this, went to the cross, spilled my blood, for you, gave my body for you. And so we're going to have a junior come up, and, and this is how, it, how we're going to do this. We have two tables up here. We have the bread, and we have a bowl that has the grape juice in it. And this is your time to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I recognize the reality of who you are, just like this bread is real, just like this juice is real, you are real. And I recognize what you've done for me, and I recognize that you've called me to be a part of, 
a community that is much bigger than myself. You died so that we could be united. And I understand that. And we want you to just dip the bread into the, the juice. No double dipping. You do it one time. You can take it back to your seat. You can pray. And you, you partake of it on your own. Everyone is invited to partake of this. A lot of people cite the passage in Corinthians where it says, if any un partake of this in an unworthy manner, that they are then responsible for the blood of Christ. That's not saying you have to be worthy to receive this. That has to deal with how the Corinthian church was abusing this time. None of us are worthy to receive this. None of us. But we are all invited. What, what God requires is that you recognize that this represents the truth. Jesus died for you, gave his blood to forgive you of your sins. If you recognize that, you can partake of this. And it doesn't matter where you are at. God wants to meet you there. And this is for you right where you are at. And so as we worship, as the Lord would move on your heart, Come, take the bread, dip it into the juice. You can go back, sit down, and allow this reality of who Jesus is to be a reality in your life. The psalmist declared, Your love, O Lord, is better than life. I hope you know that. And if your life hasn't experienced that, I pray that God would make that a reality. That the love he has for you is better than life itself. And he proved that by giving his life for us. So let's worship and as the Lord moves you come and get the elements and sit down and you can pray. Father, allow people a healthy role in our lives and to be willing to step into that role for other people, Lord. We do thank you again for your faithful and tender work, Lord, and Lord, you chasten those who you love, and, and we thank you for disciplining us as a father, but doing it because you love us and desire us to be with you, Lord. May you continue to move our hearts towards you, we pray and we ask in Jesus' name, amen.